Hello, and welcome to Friends for Life, a podcast of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod's Life Ministry. We're sharing the stories and insights of real people living out God's love for the people He's created. We hope you'll stick around and be our friends for life. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm your host, Stephanie Jabauer, and today I am joined by Alina Scammon, who is here to share her story. Like every story, hers belongs nestled within the bigger narrative that is God's redemption, his love, and his faithfulness to his people. Lena, it is a pleasure to have you with me today. Can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. My name is Lena. Um, I am a pastor's wife in Greenwich, Connecticut. I am 47 years old, and I have one daughter who is a senior in high school. So that's keeping her busy. My husband has a dual parish, um, so he's serving two churches here in Greenwich. And they're actually right in the middle of a merger process. I grew up in a Christian home. My husband also grew up in a Christian home. I would say the community we were a part of would be non-denom evangelical with very Pentecostal roots out of the 70s Jesus movement. And at one point, as, as we were young adults, the community began to discover the Reformation and and writings of authors who were commenting on Martin Luther's writings. And the theology of the Lutheran Church, although I guess we, we never knew that's what we believed, it rang true. And so, um, when my husband decided that he wanted to become a pastor, he knew that the Lutheran Church was where he was going to be. God be with you and God God be with our family too as we as we serve Jesus and serve our Lord's people. Lena, I have you on today in large part just to listen to you, um, that you might share your story. Would you be willing to share your story with my listeners too? Sure. I'll just preface by saying physical pain is not uncommon to me. Um, And for a very long time, my body has had pain of some sort. As a teenager, I didn't realize that like menstrual cycles weren't supposed to be awful and that you weren't you weren't supposed to have a couple days where you just like felt like you couldn't do anything. Like once I started talking to friends and realized like, oh, she doesn't have any pain and hers is done in two to three days. And like once you start comparing notes, then you realize like, hmm. But as I came of age in the 80s, when I would talk to a doctor about it, the response was basically like, well, this is life. Life is a woman, you know, you have cramps and you don't feel good and life goes on. So, you know, you learn pretty quick, like, okay, there's, there, there isn't really help for this. This is just the way this is. Um, even though talking to other women, you know that I knew that my experience wasn't completely normal, but okay, I I guess everybody just gets on with it. And so that's what I did for many, many years. And then when I was almost 28, I married Evan. And um, 
we wanted to have children. And when that wasn't happening in what we felt was a timely manner, we went to see a doctor. And by that time, I would say I usually knew my period was coming three to four days before it came because the pain would start then. Um, The first two days were usually super, super intense, you know. The, um, the pain for you. The pain. The intense pain. Yeah. Yeah. It it was really awful for probably two to four days. And then after that, you know, the cramping just never stopped, but it, it got better. So when I saw the gynecologist to find out, you know, why we weren't getting pregnant, she ordered an ultrasound and she could tell by the ultrasound results that I had several endometriomas. And that was, that was suppose it at that time because ultrasound isn't doesn't say for sure but it appeared to her that i had several cysts on my ovaries that were oozing so that's what an endometrioma is yes so once she got the ultrasound results back i met with her in the office and i figured it was going to be an all clear and whatever and she looked at me and said we need to go in for surgery which was a little bit of a shock to me because I had, I, it, it was very non sequitur. I wasn't expecting it at all. Um, and up until this time in my life, you have a doctor and if something's going wrong, then your doctor is going to tell you what you should do and you listen to them and you do it and then things get better, right? That's, that was kind of my whole understanding. Like, you know, you break your arm, you go to the doctor, they put on a cast, it heals, life goes on. So I really didn't do many research. She said we needed to do surgery. I said, okay, that's what we're going to do. You know, our goal is we want to have children. So please preserve that above all else, you know, when you're inside. I really didn't understand the stakes at that point. Going into it, I, I went in very naively. I didn't even know the word endometriosis at that point. She had said there were possible endometriomas or cysts on the ovaries. And in order to diagnose what was going on, she needed to see inside. So at that point, I'm still thinking like, it's going to all be okay. Like the doctor's going to look, look and do what she needs to do. And this is fine. What I didn't realize is that I would spend hours on, on the operating table and that what started as a laparoscopy, so tiny little incisions in my abdomen, one in the belly button, one in other places so that she could put in a diagnostic scope and other tools to move things around and look at things, was going to become a full open laparotomy where she was going to make an incision from hip to hip so that she could actually visualize the entire pelvic area as opposed to looking at it through a scope. So when I woke up in the hospital, I remember being in huge amount of pain with uncontrollable nausea and having kind of really no idea what was going on except for that the doctor had told my husband this was definitely endometriosis. I was in the hospital. I was sick. I knew it was all over everything. I knew it wasn't good. I knew that 
I had been cut open instead of had having little incisions. And then the next day, the doctor came in to talk to me and said, so I am suggesting that you go on a drug called Lupron. Now, what Lupron does, it sends a signal to all of your hormone production. And it says, dump everything that you have. So all the estrogen that you've prepared, all the testosterone that you've prepared, all of these hormones, dump it into the body and then shut down. So it overstimulates the hormone production in the body so the so that the hormone production then says, ah, we don't know what to do. We're done. So it's basically chemically induced menopause. And because at this point, they knew that the endometriosis feeds off of the estrogen in the body, what they thought would happen is if they removed the estrogen from the body, that would give those little blisters a chance not to grow, not to fatten up, and the immune system a chance to just rest and not have to be dealing with all this disease in there. I should go back and say, at this point, surgical treatment of endometriosis, so you can only be diagnosed with visual of the disease. Like there, there isn't a test, a blood test or, a, or anything else like that. An ultrasound won't necessarily tell you if you, they can say we believe there is, but it can't they can't diagnose it. So you ha they have to get eyes on to know. Once they have decided to do a diagnostic laparoscopy, then they have to decide whether to treat or not. And at this point, so this is 2003. So at this point, standard treatment for endometriosis was to burn the cells. So they figured if they burned the cells and caused scar tissue to be created there, that it would stop the growth of the endometriosis. So that's what she did. She went in and she burnt all the cells and she, then she excised away the disease tissue on the ovaries and then she closed me up. And then I started six months of the injections that would put me in menopause and allow my body to heal. So that was all done in your first surgery? That was all done in my first surgery. I have so many questions, Lena, um, but one of them is, how did you feel about your doctor doing that? I mean, I guess it would be a surprise to me if I went in thinking this was going to be a simple, you know, couple centimeter incisions in my abdomen and then your your whole pelvic cavity was open. I mean, was that uh, like more standard protocol well, or were so you informed, angry? In, in, informed consent, definitely. I mean, she told me that that would be an that would be some that was a possibility but again i was super naive so i was like well yeah it's kind of like saying when you get your wisdom teeth out like x y or z could happen right they're telling you the worst case scenario because they have to because they need you to sign the paper so that you don't sue them right so i i remember when i woke up i do remember actually being relieved that there was an actual issue. Hmm. Somehow in my brain, I had thought that maybe I was making this up. Like maybe my periods aren't hmm. that bad. Maybe, maybe I just can't handle what everybody else can handle. Maybe I'm 
week, right? So there was some relief knowing that there was an issue, that there was a thing, and that there wasn't there was a reason that it was a year later and we weren't pregnant. Now, of course, looking back on that, I can kind of laugh a little because it's a year. Like that isn't a super long time to wait for a child. And I have friends now that have waited and waited and waited and God has never given them a child. But at that time, I was 28. I'm a Christian. I serve the Lord. And where's my baby? Right? Mm. The idolatry of 28-year-old me, I, I, I do have to laugh a little bit at it because I just figured that because I was a Christian, that God gives you the things that you want, right? Mm. I had a very bad understanding of what God giving me the desires of my heart could mean. So, yeah, I just remember being overwhelmed completely and saying, well, I guess if my doctor is saying for me to do this, then she knows what I should be doing. But it was the first time in my life that I was dealing with any of this sort of, I'd had migraines as a teenager you do what you do, you figure out like, okay, none of these meds are helping this, you know, this is just going to be a part of life. But a diagnosis like this seemed seemed pretty big and on one hand. And then on the other hand, I thought, oh, well, it's now we're done. This is taken care of. Huh. Like I, I had stage three to four endometriosis. She treated it. We're going to do this medicine to, to heal my body. My body will be healed. I had this optimism that said it was just all going to be okay because that's what happens, right? But I, again, I was 28. I hadn't experienced that much yet. And I had it understand that living in this broken world, part of what is broken in this world is our physical bodies. And that people all around me were dealing with brokenness that they just didn't talk about because it just what it was. They woke up in the morning and they dealt with what they dealt with. And I think when you're young, you just don't, you don't see it necessarily in, in everybody around you, particularly if it's not spoken about. Right. How, kind of backtracking a, a little bit in your timeline, when you first started getting periods as a young girl, I'm assuming probably 11, uh, middle school, yeah. early high school. Okay. So you were pretty young. And then comparing notes with friends, you were just like, well, my friends can get over it, the pain in a couple days or popping some Tylenol or ibuprofen seems to help them, but not me. And then your doctor's just telling you, this is what it is to be a woman. Welcome to womanhood, essentially. Yes. Well, because there is such a thing as dysmenorrhea. So just, um, I shouldn't say just, what would be defined as painful menstruation. So there are diagnoses that involve 
painful menstrual cycles that are not endometriosis. Yes, very true. Do you think at the, at the time there wasn't much known about endometriosis? So your doctors just didn't that didn't cro- cross their mind, or uh, they d- dismissed you because you were a young girl that didn't know what it was to have a menstrual cycle? You know, I don't know. I think about that sometimes. Particularly because at the time of my first surgery, I had a 16-year-old sister. Now I have a daughter. Endometriosis is pretty well known now. I mean, not super, but doctors know about it more. But our medical community could really do a better job listening to people because pain is generally a sign that something is going wrong in the body. But for women, that particular sign generally gets, in many cases, I should say, gets overlooked because a woman can be seen as more emotional. And so in overlooking a symptom, then other disease, whatever the disease is, has the ability to progress unchecked as opposed to something being done about it. Hmm. So I really don't know. And of course, I should say, as soon as I started talking about pain with my cycle, I was immediately offered birth control pills. I can't tell you how many times that was the an- that was going to be the answer let's just take care of the hormones by hormone therapy that makes everything better right i don't know that i besides being 16 years old and being like i don't need birth control like that isn't even an issue i we never i never did do that as an option but it that was the option for painful cycles. We'll get on birth control and everything will be okay. Will it? <laughs> I don't know. It, it was 11 when you started having this pain, correct? Yeah. Because it started right away with your initial, yes. your first menses. And then you had your surgery when you were 28. Yes. Is yeah. that correct? So our my hope was that my cy- cycles would kick back in and that God would grant us the gift of a child. At that time in my life, I don't know that that would have been my language. (laughs) Of course, I knew that children come from the Lord, but I, I know I still thought in my hubris that it was my due as a good Christian girl to that children would be coming. Right. And so I kind of looked at the whole surgery and diagnosis and treatment as a trial or a testing of the Lord in my life. And I was going to come through the other side and then we were going to be right back to my vision of what the future was going to be. Little did I know. (laughs) So God did give us a miracle and I got pregnant immediately, like for no period, no 
first cycle straight off of the Lupron, I got pregnant. Because I didn't have a period and I didn't cycle the way we thought I did, I didn't know and my doctor didn't know I was pregnant until I was 10 weeks along. So I went from Lupron feeling terrible and then I was just feeling terrible. I wanted to sleep 24 hours a day. My migraine was was awful and I was I didn't understand, right? And what was happening is the we were we were trying hormone tests and stuff. We were testing the wrong thing at the wrong time. And so I ended up conceiving right away, but not realizing it until I was 10 weeks along. Um, I think that fact probably bolstered my hubris a little, you know, like, here we go. Like, here it is. The trial's done. Now I'm going to have a baby. This, we were ecstatic, absolutely ecstatic. And Katie was born about a month early. My placenta abrupted. And so that was an emergency C-section in there. And I remember the doctor telling us pretty clearly, like, we were minutes away from losing both your wife, telling my husband, from losing both your wife and the baby. So she really was our miracle baby in so many more ways than just the one. And when she was about three and a half months old, my periods returned. And with that, the pain and all the symptoms. And I, I remember thinking with the first one, like, maybe this is just because I just had a baby and I don't know how this is all supposed to feel now. But each cycle kind of kept getting worse. And so by the time she was seven months old, I was in the doctor's office and I said, we've got to do something. This is like, now I, I've got all the days of my cycle and the days before I have a couple good days and then four days surrounding mid-cycle ovulation is its whole own pain thing. And then I've got a few days before my body's getting ready for the cycle to start again. Like I don't have these, these days to be down. Like this is, this is. And so she said, yeah, I, I understand. But I was, I was in shock. Like I, I thought we were fixed. I thought the surgery was going to fix it. And then the Lupron was going to help it fix it. I was not expecting this reality, you know, having a, having a little baby and being in pain and trying to navigate all of this. So she scheduled another surgery for August of that year, which at that point meant I'd had a surgery in 2003, an emergency C-section and surgery in 2004. So now this is 2005. And I was, I was a little bit in shock that surgery was my only option, but it was surgery or Lupron and I wasn't going to do Lupron, right? So we did another surgery. Again, she had to fully open me um, because this time 
not only did we have the endometriosis all over everything, but we also had scar tissue all over everything starting to stick the bladder to the uterus and the fallopian tube to the sidewall. So you've got the endometriosis, you've got the scar tissue from the endometriosis. Now we've added adhesions slash scar tissue from the surgical intervention to the whole puzzle. And I do, it wasn't, that was August of 2005. By January, February of 2006, I felt recovered enough from this, like recovering from a, sur- a fully open surgery like that, it takes months. Like even a laparoscopy, you may be healed on the outside very soon, but they've done a ton of work inside. And it takes, I would say, a good six months to a year before you start feeling like yourself again. So within months, I knew I was like, okay, well, you know, every surgery creates a new normal. And after each new surgery, you've got to get used to the new normal. What is normal? That was, that was my second endometriosis surgery, but my third surgery in three years. And so when I was seeing my doctor several months later and saying, it didn't help, what can we do? Um, She said, Lena, I can't take you back in for another surgery. You've had three surgeries in three years. Another surgery isn't, we're we're hitting, hitting the point of diminishing returns with surgical intervention. And all this time I'm, you know, I'm trying any sort of natural naturopathic, like anything that I can try to do to help my body and help my immune system and support the body. You know, research, medical research kind of became a thing for me at that point because I'm living this reality of physical pain and other weird physical symptoms that I have no control over. God had given me the gift of a child and I want to be her mother, a good mother. I have a husband. I want to be a good wife. Like all of these things are like all of my vocations are weighing on me in one sense. And in another sense, I know like this physical issue can't, can't be everything. This is just my physical body. So there's got to be something else, right? There's somebody's got to have an answer to something somewhere for me. So I ended up doing what I said I would never do, which was I did Lupron again. And of course, throughout this whole time, we're hoping for siblings for Katie, and that's not happening. So we did Lupron, and we looked into infertility treatments, and with that came other procedures, and... It, ju- it just kept going and going and going. So finally in December of 2007, so this has been a year and four months since my previous surgery, my doctor said, okay, I'll go in again. And when she did, the adhesions and the scar tissue and the endometriosis were worse. And now I had bowel involvement. So she had to bring in a general surgeon and he had to visualize the entire bowel because the endometriosis was starting to eat through to the mucosa of the bowel. 
And after that surgery, I remember like not even a window of relief. I just remember being like, this is like, what do we do? And I think my husband was kind of at his wits end at that point watching me. And I, I'm not exactly sure. But I, I believe he went to our pastors at that time and said, what do I do? We're doing everything we know to do and nothing is helping and it's getting worse. And at this point, I knew that was a pretty common story among women with endometriosis. The surgical intervention was not necessarily helpful. Now, for some people, it is. For some people, they, the doctor goes in, does the surgery, they're fine, they never have another thing about it. And then there's a whole nother section of people with endometriosis who have stories like mine, where it's surgery after surgery after surgery and things get worse and worse and worse, and there isn't an answer. Somebody told my husband at this point, there has to be an expert in endometriosis. There has to be. See what you can find. So far, you've been thinking like you go to your local doctor and there's got to be some, 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 somebody somewhere who knows more. And don't let geography be an issue in this search. So that's what we did. We started, I started researching not just in my geographical area, but looking like everywhere. So we researched and I ended up finding that, again, my story was not uncommon, that lots of women experience this cycle and that there are several, there were several doctors in the United States, not the only ones, but there were three that I could pinpoint on the internet who, because of their experience working with endometriosis and surgeries, had started treating endometriosis like cancer. In that, when they went in to treat the endometriosis, instead of burning it and creating scar tissue, they would excise it till they reached clean margins, so only healthy tissue. So they would actually cut the endometriosis completely out and remove it, and then they would continue removing layers of tissue until they reached healthy, pink, good tissue, as opposed to somewhat inflamed or diseased tissue because it had been affected by the endometrial implant. And then you took on the responsibility of attempting to get reimbursed from your insurance company. So that was going to be a huge chunk for us. I already felt, I remember at the time feeling like I'm failing in so many ways. Every day, my failure is smacking me in the face. And now we're going to take every penny that we've saved in the few years we've been married and we're going to spend it on a surgery? How is that okay? In my husband's eyes and in his brain, it, it was a no-brainer. Like, it's just money, of course. This is what we do. But I was struggling with huge amounts of guilt and feeling like 
was it worth it? And what if it didn't help? And we spent all this money and and he just kept looking at me like I was from Mars. <laughs> like he said, I don't understand how this doesn't just make sense to you. Of course it's worth a try. Anything is worth a try at this point. Because quality of life had gotten to the point where going grocery shopping, that was the one thing I could do in a day was go grocery shopping. And that was going to require that I was in recovery for probably the next couple days, trying to minimize the symptoms. Of course, by now I have what's called chronic pelvic pain. So I'm always in pain in my pelvis, always. No matter what time it gets worse with, with cycles, it got worse with ovulation, but I was just always in pain. The referred pain would be happening if I did something like grocery shopping, then everything would hurt everywhere. I would be exhausted. And that was, that was it. I was done. So the next day would be spent recovering. I was super careful about my calendar. Like, okay, I have a doctor's appointment this day. That's the one thing I'm going to do that day. You know, and I have a at that point, probably three and a half year old at home. So she's super energetic. And and there were days that I remember just needing to lay down. And so I would lay down on the couch and I'd get her all hyped up that she was going to get to watch a special show on TV. (laughs) And I'd get her little snacks set up all around her and I'd lay on the couch and I'd put her against me and my arm around her sealed against my other arm so that I would know if she was getting up to go somewhere or do something (laughs) so that I could close my eyes Mm -hmm. and rest, right? Living like that does something in your head. I had never understood that people lived with pain and there just wasn't anything to do about it. So to my husband, it was worth whatever it took. And I was still struggling with it. That was in June of 2008. So this is six months after my last surgery with my regular gynecologist. I had started looking for this surgeon in January, not even weeks after that surgery, I'd started looking for this new surgeon. And One of the surgeons was going to charge money to look at my case and this surgeon wasn't. And so I thought, well, I'll just, I'll try sending all my case notes to him and see, just see what he has to say. And so he arranged a call after he had reviewed my case. And I remember just feeling relief. Like as he was talking, he would ask me questions that let me know that he understood. He understood that I was never not in pain. He understood that I felt like an old, old, old lady, but I was 34. He just, he just got it. And I, like, I'd never felt that much compassion from a physician before. And he just kept saying, 
I, I see this all the time. This is what I do. Your case is exactly what I deal with. Come. And so he, he had a whole process for how you were supposed to do it. We ended up getting a hotel. You're supposed to be there a few days before your surgery because he wants to do a full physical and he wants to do an ultrasound and do a physical examination. And so when we got there, we did all of that. My husband was with me. And as he was doing the physical, he was pressing different points on my body. He would put his two fingers at the base of my skull and then he'd put his two fingers right above my hips. And there were all these spots that he was pressing into my body. And I was literally at the time, like jumping off the table. Like it hurt so bad when he would just put a little bit of pressure there. And my husband finally said, wait, this obviously isn't a pelvic exam, right? This has nothing to do with endometriosis. Like, why is he, why are you poking your fingers all over her body, right? And um, that was when I was diagnosed with fibromyalgia. And he said, he said with, with fibromyalgia, we do what's called a tender point exam. And if somebody is tender or has a painful reaction to, I believe, 11 out of 18 tender points or something like that, he said, then we would diagnose with fibromyalgia. And Evan's like, well, she was jumping everywhere you touched. And he goes, yeah, he goes, 100% of the tender points are triggered in her body. And so he then explained for the first time to me that the way our bodies deal with pain is when we are in intractable chronic pain that there isn't an answer for. Many times our body says, this is too much. I don't know what to do. And it just turns on all of the pain signals everywhere and start sending pain from all of the nerve endings. That sounds so cruel. And it's, it literally is our body's method of coping with this, with this pain, because it just can't, it just can't cope. So again, I was relieved to have a name or an answer. Again, I was naive to think that a name or an answer was actually an answer because fibromyalgia is one of those things we don't know about. We don't understand there are methods of treating. Some work for some people, others work for other people. But it it definitely helped me understand what was going on. When he did the ultrasound and the physical examination, he he was at a point where he he felt like he he could not diagnose endometriosis with an ultrasound, but he had seen enough ultrasounds and then immediately following surgeries to be able to look at areas and be suspicious of you know say this hmm. looks this looks like endometriosis. So he felt like surgery was definitely definitely needed to happen. He only did laparoscopies because I'd asked him if he was going to need to open me all the way up. And he said, no, no, no. I, he uses robotic 
tools or what, you know, robotic laparoscopy. And he said, I'm really good at what I do. And I do this and I do it day in and day out. And this is what I do. And we're going to get this taken care of for you. So the plan was a laparoscopy. And then I would be in the hospital overnight and I would recover for a few days in a hotel and then fly home. The surgery took over six and a half hours. He ended up having to bump several other cases that day. And he diagnosed the obvious endometriosis and adhesions and scar tissue, but he went on to call the area a frozen pelvis. So basically, when he opened me up, what he saw was a massive scar tissue. So no longer was there, you know, a bladder and a uterus and ovaries and fallopian tubes. There was just scar tissue with organs midst the scar tissue stuck to each other, um, stuck to the pelvic wall, covered over with scar tissue. And in all of that, so he, you know, he spent the time like separating out the different organs and he ended up removing my left ovary and left fallopian tube because they were literally just obliterated by scar tissue and there was no way that he could save them. You know, he removed, he made the bladder free floating again, the uterus did the best he could with the right ovary and fallopian tube, because at this point we still felt like we weren't, we weren't ready to preclude God giving us the gift of another child, but we knew that if we removed all of the over both ovaries and both fallopian tubes, that would take a real miracle, right? <laughs> so, um, so we asked him to maintain fertility if at all possible. So he did that. He removed my appendix, not because it was. In many cases, he would go in and the appendix would be inflamed and red because of the inflammation in the surrounding area. And he just felt like, in my case, getting the appendix out of the mix of everything was a good thing. Like the less, the less to stick, the better. So up to this point, from my first surgery, 2003 until 2008, I had been on and off pain medication based on, you know, if I was having a surgery, I usually had some for the bad, for the really bad days, but I had to be really careful about how much I was taking because I couldn't get a refill, right? And then when I started with a pain management physician, they, they have their whole own, okay, we'll start with this and let's try antidepressants and let's try this and let's try, you know, they have a whole cocktail of things that they do to try to help as well. I honestly don't know how much it helped. But again, at the time I was thinking, I've got to try anything, right? Anything to create a better quality of life. Because at this point, that's what we, more than anything else, what, what, we're, what, we des what we're desiring. Looking back on it, I mean, what's the only thing you can do if you're always in pain and you go to a pain management physician and they say, well, let's try this. And then you go back and they say, well, where's your pain at? And you're like, 
It didn't. Okay, well, let's try upping this and upping that. And so then you then you end up on this cycle of increasing everything all the time. Yeah. So I did that from 2008 until 2021. Last year. Yeah. The surgery in California changed things. It helped. It did. I still was in pain all the time. I still had issues with my cycle. But at this point, I had begun to understand that I think this is the way it is. The understanding of Dr. Cook and his staff in California helped me to realize, oh, I'm not the only one this is happening to. This is, this is happening all over the place. I just have never heard about it. I wasn't aware of it. So at that point, I think the longest I had been between surgeries was less than a year, about a year to less than a year. And in June of 2008, I had, even though I still had fibromyalgia and I still had these other things and I was still trying to learn how to create a life in and under that suffering, but not let it take over everything, it was, it was two and a half years later before I said, okay, something's not, something's really not right again. I can tell it's really not right again. And this isn't like just my overall body pain. This isn't migraine pain. This isn't something inside is not okay. So we went back to California and did another surgery there. And what I was feeling was just all of the organs being bound up again. The endometriosis wasn't everywhere this time. The endometriosis was pretty localized around the, on the right side of my pelvis where the ovary and the fallopian tube were left. Looking back now, I can kind of realize or believe that the deepest seed of the disease tissue was in the ovaries. And that was actually where the the deepest dark was for, for me. So that surgery was in January of 2011. And then two years after that, I was like, okay, we probably need to go back down there. But at that point, I hadn't conceived in six years. I was in a much better place than my 28-year-old self, realizing that and actually believing the word where it says that the Lord opens the womb and closes the womb. And at that point, I wasn't feeling like I needed to fix myself. Had God intended us to have more children, he is perfectly capable of doing that. Even if there was physical disruption, oh yes. Even if there was hormonal disruption, absolutely. The size of our family was not a surprise to God. It wasn't a plan B. It wasn't, oh, well, I guess they'll just have one. Our family was 
the perfect size that God had intended it to be from before the foundations of the earth. And not one bit of this was outside his will for my life. He was writing the story. And it wasn't a mistake. So being able to look at my story from that perspective and say, you know what? God hasn't given us the gift of another child, but that's not because he's not capable. It's because this is what he intended for us. And through that lens, I could say, you know what? I think maximizing fertility isn't our aim anymore. I think it's about quality of life. It's about being able to serve him and his church and not be in bed all the time. It's about being able to be the mother to my daughter and the wife to my husband and to fulfill those vocations that he's given me to fulfill at this point in my life. And so I really was able to let go of like, I know it sounds weird, but my uterus, my ovary, my flow, like to let go and say like, I think it's time. And we knew a hysterectomy in over half the cases means nothing, but it was worth giving it a try because maybe, just maybe, maybe with the excisions that we'd had before, the disease was, progression was less with my second surgery. So, I mean, there was a lot of prayer about it. But we decided that that's what we would do. And then I thought, well, why do I need to go down to California and pay cash for a surgery? Why don't we see if my local gynecologist can do the surgery? If it's frozen pelvis again and it's too much for for her, she can close me up and then we'll go to California, right? So I went to my local doctor and she said, no, I, I think I can do this. And she had all my previous history, so she knew what she could be getting into. And it was a a long surgery for a hysterectomy, but it wasn't a six and a half hour surgery like a, a couple of the other ones had been. And she said, when I opened you up, everything was, you know, it was, it was all stuck together, but we got it all unstuck. There was only endometriosis in a single pocket which was where the scar tissue had scarred over your ovary and fallopian tube and sealed it to your right pelvic wall. And only when I opened that scar tissue was there endometriosis. Everywhere else, it was just adhesions and scar tissue. There wasn't any endometriosis anywhere else in the pelvic cavity. And so I cleaned all of that up. We took out the uterus. We took out the ovaries. We took out the fallopian tube. It's all gone. And I remember waking up in the hospital and saying, the big, dark disease, that feeling in my pelvis is gone. Like it's literally gone. And um, like I said, I could look back now and look at the surgical reports and see that the ovaries were probably the issue all along and causing a lot of a lot of the issue. And I, I remember just 
being so grateful for the faithfulness of God in that moment. Because without His Spirit that leads me to repentance, a hysterectomy would have been unthinkable at 28. Like, it would have it would have absolutely devastated me. But in that moment, it was so evident that God had been orchestrating everything. You know, he knew. He he knows. And we don't. Yeah. So, I was able to, at that point, physically, my health started getting better. And, you know, started getting off different meds and, and I could, I could just physically feel a difference at that point. Shortly thereafter, we ended up moving and going. So my husband could do some undergrad work before he went to seminary. And then we went to seminary and now we're here and my body still is kind of in hyper alert mode. You know, I still have pain always, all the time. I've been diagnosed now with chronic daily migraine. So the hysterectomy didn't make everything go away and everything's perfect. You know, it just, for me, it was the end of the endometriosis part of the story. But then you still deal with the pain of chronic migraines and do you still have the fibromyalgia pain? Yeah. Yeah. At this point, all my muscles hurt, all my joints hurt. My head usually hurts. <laughs> Does it hurt now? Yes. Uh, I can see you, but of course, none of the listeners w- will be able to. But you don't, you don't look in pain. Has that taken time to mask that? How do you retain composure so well? <laughs> At least from my perspective. The scripture that says that God's grace is sufficient for you comes to mind. There's only so much that looking like you feel awful helps. And that isn't, that doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. It just means that. There are other things I'd rather be thinking about and doing than concentrating on that piece. I think a lot of people, when you speak to them, like let's say in the church at large, we can't tell by looking at people what it is that they're bearing in that day or they've borne in the previous years, but God's grace was there with them through all of it. And his grace is here with me. And he's promised that he'll never leave me or forsake me. And he's promised to be here. And I can look at my baptism and I can say that I'm saved. God became man to go to a cross to die for me. And that's so much bigger than if my body is in pain right now. And if it's bigger for me, 
to me, that tells me that it's bigger for each person who sits in the pew on Sunday. And that I don't know what it is that they're bearing, but I want to help them bear their burdens. And as I help them bear theirs, they help me bear mine. I know God works all things together for those who are called. And that's me. And I know that because I've been baptized. And I can look at my baptism and I can say, He's called me. He's called me and He's saved me. And He's granted me eternal life. And there will come a day when my body won't be in pain, when there won't be such thing as pain or disease. And I look forward to that day and I say, come Lord Jesus with the rest of the church. But for now, I live in a broken world and part of that broken world, because of my sin, part of that broken world is my broken body but Christ came to save me. And speaking of his promises, his mercy to me is that he became man and went to the cross to die for me. So I do cry every Sunday, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. And he does. He has mercy every single minute of every single day. There's a scripture in 2 Corinthians. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. I mean, he tells us. He tells us that we're going to suffer in this world. That might have been a surprise to me (laughs) as a young Christian, but that wasn't a surprise to him. He wasn't surprised by any of it. Lena, I know what I would hope to accomplish by getting your story out for listeners to hear, but what is it that you would hope for our listeners in hearing your story? I think primarily that people would know that they're not alone. That suffering in this life is, but God in his mercy is bigger than that suffering. That the person sitting next to them in the pew at church is bearing their burdens in the same way that you're bearing your burdens. And that that's not something that ever needs to be borne alone. Yes, it's not the easiest to talk about all of this sort of stuff. It's not something I talk about very often, but I do have those people who will say, so how are you doing? 
I'll be like, I'm doing great. How are you? And they'll be like, no, I mean, how are you doing? How are you feeling today? Or they'll ask a more specific question. And even just in that, even in just someone being aware that this is a burden that I bear, that maybe talking about it all the time isn't comfortable to me, but them being aware that it's there and letting me know that they know and that they're helping me to bear that burden is an extremely special thing. Does your husband specifically help you in bearing this? Because it's the closest to home to him next to it being the closest to home for you. I think he's extremely gracious. Because there are many things that on any given day, just don't get done. (laughs) Or, you know, maybe the piano doesn't get dusted for an extra long time because that's just kind of at the lowest of lowest on the priority list. So there's all those little practical things, but I think he never ever lets me forget ever that what I really need in life And out of life is I need my sins to be forgiven. And I need to know that I'm going to be with Christ eternally. And that's the most important piece. That I can receive the body and blood of Christ for the forgiveness of my sins. And I can stand in church and sing with all the believers of the place that I'm going and that I know I'm going without a doubt. I think that's something that he's always been very good at is reminding me what really matters and what's really important in a world that is screaming about things that have no value whatsoever. Lena, I thank you so much for being my guest, for staying on with me for much longer than I usually have. But for me, it felt like a very short amount of time because not only are you a beautiful storyteller, but you are a beautiful person. And so time spent with you goes by very quickly. And I thank you for your time today. Thank you for having me on. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review and don't forget to click the follow or subscribe button so you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. New episodes drop twice each month. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram as Friends for Life LCMS. And finally, listeners, we want to hear from you. Do you have an idea about a guest you'd like to hear from or a topic you want talked about? Email us at friendsforlife at lcms.org. We want to hear from you about what you want to hear about when it comes to issues of life. Thanks for joining us. Friends for Life is a podcast that introduces listeners to life issues by introducing them to friends who stand for life.